Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with Dennis Edwards on his work on 1 Peter. So Scott, this is, uh, man, I've been looking forward to this conversation, and uh, this is really our second installment in the Story of God commentary series that we're kind of paralleling with our, our podcast and different episodes here and there. And so we got um, Dr. Dennis Edwards joining us today, and um, I know you've got a little bit more to, to share and fill in just so our listeners um, know who Dennis is and all the great things that he's been doing, if you want to fill that in now. Yeah, well, and we'll let Dennis do some of the talking but uh, about about his life here. But when I was, uh, I, as a general editor, when we were working on names of people who could write commentaries, Dennis was at, uh, near the very top of the list for me because this is a commentary series that um, is for pastors. And so a pastor with a Ph.D. in New Testament is in a, was in our A list. And uh, Dennis, um, I was so glad when Dennis accepted. I know he, he did his Ph.D. work on James, um, and it's easier to write on James for him, although he, I don't know if he's ever done it. It, it. Sometimes it's more difficult to write on what you did your dissertation on than it is something else. But uh, I was so happy when he accepted First Peter because, for me, First Peter is one of the first books, uh, first early Christian uh, sets of reflection on uh, social issues and the relationship of Christians to the Roman Empire. So I thought Dennis would do a good job, and he did more than that. But I've known Dennis since the, I want to say the late 1980s. I, I could yeah. be wrong on that. Is that right? No, that's right. That's right. Uh, when Dennis was a student at Trinity, and I was a young professor, and I got to know him, and I have pretty much followed his career, stayed in touch with him. Uh, he went off and, and did some uh, pastoral work. But I'm going to ask Dennis to tell us a little bit of his story uh, in a few minutes, and then we'll we'll dip in a little bit to um, the writing of a commentary on First Peter. Sure, thanks. And thanks, Scott, for letting me uh, be on the podcast and talk about the work. But briefly, I, I left um, my... Um, my, my interest in math and science, I have an engineering degree, chemical engineering, and I uh, left teaching math and science to, <clears throat> to pursue my MDiv at Trinity. That's how we met. And then I went to become a church planter in Brooklyn, New York, and then served an established church in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and then planted a church also in Washington, D.C. in a very different neighborhood than Capitol Hill and served there for my longest stretch of ministry. Um, and during that time, I taught biblical studies, um, New Testament mostly, biblical Greek at the Ecumenical Institute of Theology in Baltimore. And also uh, Bethel Seminary had um, an extension called Seminary of the East. And I taught there and then came to Minneapolis in 2012. So been here for six years. So that's a quick, uh, um, a nutshell of my um, ministry experience. And and there, there was some NIAC in there too, wasn't there? Did you teach? Uh, yeah, you remember that early yeah. on. Yeah. Um, right when I was getting my doctorate, I uh, NIAC College was trying to start an extension 
in D.C. similar to what they had done in New York City. In fact, I I went up to New York to watch what they had done, and and uh, I was one of the first hires at that uh, D.C. campus. It was really hard to sustain the new work, but that was actually where I got my feet wet teaching Bible on an undergrad level. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, a little confession here. When I was teaching at North Park and we had a New Testament opening, Dennis is the guy that I wanted to get to the school. So um, we actually offered Dennis a job, but it just didn't work out for him. And so when I came to Northern, within the first month, I had a conversation with the existing president and dean about when we have an opening, I know a pastor with a Ph.D. in New Testament who would fit Northern perfectly. And so Dennis is going to join Northern Seminary officially Mm -hmm. uh, as a full-time professor this fall. And uh, I am very excited about him uh, because I know who he is and what he he can do for Northern, I mean, in bringing to uh, to our collegiality, but also because of what he can do for our students, mm-hmm. that here's a man who's been pastoring for some 30 years who, who can talk to the students about New Testament and also about what goes on in a church life. So uh, so I'm really excited, Dennis, that you're going to join us. Well, We're all thanks. excited, man. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the gracious comments. This is good. Thank you. All right. Yeah. All right. So here, here we have First Peter and uh, Dennis. Um, in writing the commentary as a pastor, mm-hmm. I wonder, I wonder if you could tell us the the difficulty and the um, the the good and the bad, as it were, <laughs> of writing a commentary while you're pastoring. If if not, also. Um, a new, pa- I mean, a pastor at a new church. So, right. So, some right. Of that, so go ahead. Well, thanks. Yeah. Some of it just had to do with time, you know, um, learning, learning my way here in Minneapolis. I had started the work in DC, uh, writing and, and researching and, and, and doing translation work on the, on the Greek text. But then things really changed when I got to Minneapolis and found out it was, took me longer than I thought to adjust to the to the new setting, new city, new church, new way of doing things. So it slowed down uh, quite a bit. So one di- one difficulty is just the pragmatics of finding the chunks of time to write. And, and it is different, in my view, writing the commentary than writing um, something that might be more, uh, let's say, creative or topical. Uh, for me, it was, I really needed to spend some time reflecting on the text a great deal and then doing some, you know, research work and then writing. And that, it was just a different kind of uh, experience for me. So yeah, time was a big issue. And then secondly, I think the other issue was not just the pragmatics of, of writing, but knowing that those who would read the commentary would be busy pastors who don't have a lot of time to wade through technical arguments and trying to discern what's helpful to put in there um, and not to skim over important uh, uh, theological and interpretive matters, yet do it in a way that doesn't lose the reader right away because they just don't have time for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I was sensitive to that all the way through. Well, and and I think I think that's exactly uh, what many pastors are looking for. My, my experience with pastors 
is that in preparing a sermon, they want to have a commentary that um, that does it all for them, so they don't have to read six commentaries. Right. Uh, and they they don't want it a long section. I, I'm, for instance, I'm working on Romans right now, and mm. I'm looking at Richard Longenecker, and he might have fifty verses, fifty pages on a passage. <laughs> well, you know, my experience with pastors is they don't have time for that. That's right. So so they need somebody who's read Longenecker and mm. put it all together with other viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, a sensitivity to theology and to a local church context, yes. all of a sudden now you have a commentary by a pastor who says, this is what uh, Elliot says, and this is what uh, Ramsey Michael says, and mm. this is what, you know, so-and-so, uh, J.N.D. Kelly says, mm-hmm. and this is what I says, and <laughs> theologically, uh, you know, this is where we go because we have some theological sensitivities, but in preaching this and applying this, we go in this direction, and they go, yeah, that's, that's, what, I, that's, that's what I found in your commentary, Dennis. Thank you, and I, I really, you, you summed it up well. I mean, I I wanted to share what what experts had found and discovered, or at least what they had pointed to as the uh, significant issues, and then to be able to not just recapitulate that, but just to say what I've discovered and and to um, and to say it clearly enough that people could grasp it. But I really found um, the 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 living the story section to be. Um, uh, what what a lot of people, at least through feedback given to me, found to be rich as well. Yeah. And and uh, I, I could just even tell you, just interesting. This one guy, he's a he's a leader here in town, and he convenes a clergy gathering every month. And um, so you know, he he bought the commentary, and I didn't think it was going to go anywhere after that. But he wrote he wrote to me, and he said, you know, in fact, I have it right in front of me. He said, I'm working my way through your extraordinary commentary on First Peter. Various questions arise, and I wish I was sitting in a classroom with you or in a Bible study as we explore the text. I'm also grateful for the structure of the commentary series, and I've already ordered two other volumes. And I think somebody like him who's been in church ministry for a while sees the value of engaging the scripture text, but then also speaking to the uh, as much as possible to our contemporary situation. Yeah. You know, Dennis, uh, I wrote a commentary on Galatians. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the original uh, version of this series, although this new one is quite a bit different, mm-hmm. called the NIV Application Commentary. Oh, yes. And mm-hmm. I still get letters from <clears throat> pastors who are using I got one last or this week or wow. last week, last weekend on Galatians and that he was working on it. And I thought, I can't believe that commentary is still useful. So so this is going to have some life for you. You know, Dennis, uh, First Peter, to me, has that amazing section that starts in chapter, and I don't know exactly what sections you'd want to talk about. I think it starts in chapter 2, verse yeah. 11, and yeah. goes through at least 3.7, and then there's some discussion of whether it goes to 3.12, etc. Right. Um, I wonder if you could, you know, this is a section where uh, Paul says, uh, I, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of flesh, conduct yourselves mm-hmm. among the Gentiles. And then then he looks at slaves, he looks at wives, he looks at husbands. Mm-hmm. And in, in a sense, he's saying 
this is the way I want you people in your various stations of life to live in the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire is against us and watching us. And this yeah. is the best way to conduct ourselves in this world. I wonder if you could just share some thoughts about oh, this my. central section. Well, you know, I did not know that you would ask me about this section, but this has by far been the most challenging section and the yep. most I've talked about since I've written it when I've had a chance to speak. There, there's several things I'll say, but and I'll be brief, but one of them is that first it's hard because the instructions to slave to slaves, as you and I both know, when we talk about things like Philemon or or the household codes and uh, Paul's letters, we we kind of really wish for a strong denunciation of slavery and we don't get it. We don't get our 21st century sensibilities back, you know, in this uh, first century text. So so it bothers us that Peter basically says to them, you know, deal with it in a Jesus like way. But he acknowledges that it's unjust that suffering's unjust. So one of the things I like to bring out is that I want to redeem the picture of the non-citizen, the slave, or the marginal citizen, the woman, and to show how they exemplify for us in unique ways the way of Christ. And that's what Peter does. He takes us back to Jesus as an example. So even as slaves in this unjust situation, they become our best representatives uh, of what Jesus uh, is like, and, and what following Jesus can mean. So now to redeem the slave, in a sense, I'm saying slaves now become teachers for us, not just not merely people to be pitied, but they become examples, they become models. And in some ways that, that for me even rides into my uh, African-American experience, looking back on my forebears and say, you know, that it, rather than just pity their state, I can celebrate at least to a degree that they become models in, in, in their um, faith and fortitude for me today. So in some sense, I kind of recapture that. The second thing I want to say is that the, the, um, the picture that we get of Peter telling them, uh, telling his readers to um, live like Jesus, but you're in this hostile society. I had a student come to me recently and say, you know, it's like when African-American parents give their black sons the talk. And I said, oh my goodness, that's, that's hitting it. It's that society's messed up and it's not fair if you get pulled over. But if you get pulled over, this is how you behave so we don't make it worse. And I think in some ways there's a parallel there mm -hmm. that Peter's telling his readers, hey, you're a small part of this big empire. Life is not fair right now. They're they're, they're, they're saying things about you and doing things, but don't make it worse by, by behaving in such a way that would not look like Jesus. So it's not passive, but it's, it's intelligent um, uh, dissent, um, and, and, and there's an intelligent way or godly way of, of um, maintaining one's cool, I guess you could say. You know, the other side that you brought this up, Dennis, and I'm glad you did, is that uh, Peter acknowledges that it's unjust. That's right. I mean, it's not like he says, you know, slavery is a good thing and too bad. Right. Uh, he doesn't, he does not. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And and I know when I worked on First Peter way back in the 80s, uh, uh, yeah. I wasn't as sensitive and aware of that as when I worked on Philemon. 
and mm. I've changed. I've changed quite a bit of my view on what was going on with slavery. Uh, at that time, people were saying slavery was like American employment, and they were saying it was uh, New World slavery was a whole lot worse than Roman slavery. Well, sorry, that's just not the case. And uh, a scholarship has really uncovered a lot of stuff about slavery, and it's it's making some of this stuff look worse. But it, it is not like Peter endorses slavery. It's just I I would say. He he would fight against it in some way. He would dissent. He would resist. But it's not like he thought he could change the the law or or make Roman Empire a different place. And so, in his context, he wanted to live above and beyond slavery, but uh, not at the same time accept it. So I'm really glad you said that about dissent. Yeah. And you know the the statements made about men and women in the context. Yeah are not exactly uh, the way we would say things today either. So That's right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, in, in that example, too, I would say women, while the um, picture is of, uh, of the clear um, dominating position that the husbands have, what the wives are teaching us is a way of evangelism that actually challenges the sort of stereotypical evangelical status quo which is confront people, give them give them the facts, and get them out quickly, and don't give them much room for conversation. I think many of us have seen over the years that that's not necessarily a helpful thing in our culture. And so Peter says you can win them without words. There's something in the in wives being held up now as a model for evangelism. Now, admittedly. They're not in the best position in society. Patriarchy. Yep. So Peter doesn't take on the patriarchy per se, but he does say, women, you have this unique way. And also now they serve as models for us yeah. in how we can do evangelism. You know, Dennis, what you've done here, in a sense, is turned the text inside out or upside down. And you've, uh, where, whereas it seems like the text moves from a master to a slave, from a husband to a wife, this text... Yeah, what what you're doing is showing the marginalized person becomes the model for Christian behavior to the person in power, and the uh, the slave or the servant, the uh, the wife becomes uh, the paradigm of what it means to live in the world as a Christian. That's I think amen. that's really I think that's really helpful. Well, amen. Thanks, Scott. I, I'm glad <laughs> that you caught that because. I'm, I'm thinking that what we're seeing even now in our society is that people are messed up with this whole power thing. And, and, and I think if our eyes and our hearts could be turned toward those that we may have overlooked before, there's a way of Jesus or a way of being like Jesus that is particularly evident in people who have had faith but are on the margins. And yeah. so, so for me, Peter has has spoken to those people, given them, put the spotlight on them, but has shown that they teach us something and not just are to be pitied. Yeah. Well, Dennis, uh, I want to change subjects a little bit. Sure. That is, uh, that's beautiful. And uh, I, I think we could, you could probably preach on this for about six hours <laughs> without preparation. But uh, I'm wondering, uh, in your reading of the commentary, or writing of the commentary, Yeah. Uh, what it did for you personally, what it did for you, let's say, spiritually, 
what, what was it like as an experience to work on this text like this and to write a commentary? Well, there, oh man, a lot well, of, I, I'll, I'll start and while, while I'm talking, you give okay. yourself time to think, but when I wrote Philemon for Erdman, I don't think I ever had a commentary or any kind of work <clears throat> that I've written on where I, th I became so engaged with the text that mm. when I sent the commentary to the publisher, I was really sad. I, I felt like I'd said what I needed to say. I'd said probably more than I needed to say. Um, I had revised it several times, and I was just so sad when I had to send it in because it was such an experience for me to engage that text in its world and to and to listen to God speak to me in the writing of the text. So I'm wondering uh, if you had had a similar experience with First Peter. Well, there was a little bit of sadness. I, I, I can relate to that. I, I think I felt like I kept asking myself, am I done? Am I done? Because the the I think the message of the book just kept hitting me in 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 ways that um, uh, I don't know, it just it, it was humbling. I'll say it that way. It was humbling. Yeah. Yeah. And part, partly it's humbling that, you know, you're doing something that you hope people will read and get something out of. But it was also humbling to be reading and working through a text that was speaking to me. I mean, all these words about holiness and and uh, and and living the way of Jesus and and shepherding God's people. I mean, this was it was hitting me in some really uh, meaningful ways that I almost didn't want to stop. And but at the same time, I, I wanted to be done. <laughs> Well, yeah, that that goal. Uh, I mean, um, you said something early about writing a commentary. There's a grind about a commentary that is not like a book that's creative. Yeah, is that you know you finish a passage and you start all over again. You don't. F you you have, let's say, there's thirty passages in First Peter. You have thirty little books you write. It's not like it's one book. It's it just keeps. Every every new passage, you start all over again. Got to translate right. the text. So it is it is, and it requires a lot of time. Yeah. Um, That's right. But uh, I I know the experience of sending a manuscript, and there's a certain sense of relief. I'm done. Right. Uh, but there's also t t what I've discovered is it takes me weeks, many times, mm. to get that project out of my head into something else because yeah. I, I I'm sure you experienced it. You were thinking like Peter over and over. <laughs> and then you, then you, all of a sudden you say, I got to preach now it's Easter and I'm preaching on, on Luke and I'd rather be talking about Peter. Yes, <laughs> that's true. It, it, it had become like a part of my, my wife joked many years ago when I was doing the James work, our, our four children all have names that start with J. She said, I think we have another child with J a James because you know, I belabored over it. Yeah. But I felt in a similar way with First Peter. There was a labor over it, of course, a labor of love. But yeah. um, but just as you say, there's almost a, a kind of a sadness of separation. But Peter was with me, and I still, um, you know, it's not been that long. I still think about places in the book that uh, hit me when I think about different aspects of ministry. Right? Yeah. That comes to me right away from First Peter. <laughs> well, Dennis. Um we could slightly shift topics. Uh, sure. I wonder if you would, uh, if you have some thoughts about uh, your goals, your hopes, your your concerns 
about yeah. teaching seminary students at Northern uh, in light of pastoral ministry. Uh, I'm yeah. sure you got stuff to say about that. Well, I mean, yeah, I do have a few things, but I, I'm sure I'll learn more in the, uh, as time goes on. I think one of the things that hits me is I appreciated when I had you at TEDS as well as a few other professors, um, this very uh, high respect for the scriptures. And when I mean respect, I'm not talking superstition over the Bible. I just mean to to, ha to rightly handle, I guess, as Paul would say, right? Um, and so I, I, I gained that. And I want to make sure I give that to students, that same kind of respect for scripture, that we take it seriously. I mean, seriously, that, we, that we're not lazy with our work, I mean, that, that yeah. kind of sobriety. Um, but I do worry at times I don't want to be too technical and I don't want students to, uh, th this one concern is people want to be able to take what they got in class today and use it tomorrow. And I know that that's, that is, um, you know, maybe at times one can do that, but there has to be a little space for reflection and rumination, you know what I mean? To, oh, yeah. to have it seep in and become part of you and then you minister out of that. So I sometimes have a fear of people thinking, oh, you're talking these deep things about the scripture passage, but I don't know if I can preach that next week. And I often tell students, maybe you won't. I said, but it's gonna be part of who you are and eventually it's gonna come out of you in your ministry, but you've gotta dig a well and let it go deep and then you pull out what you need when, um, as people uh, uh, need it. So I do have a fear of being you know, not scratching where people are itching. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we have to be very practical too. <laughs> you know, um, there have been more, than, uh, it, I, it doesn't happen weekly at Northern, but uh, several times each term, a student will come up to me, you know, they're pastors, a lot of them are pastors, and say, You gave me my sermon for Sunday. <laughs> and at, if, I don't think they're going to take my points exactly, but the idea generated, they go, that, that's what I need to preach on. Uh -huh. So that, that's going to happen. But I, I really appreciate what you just said there, is that we're given foundations, we're given uh, deeper, we're digging holes that they're going to have to fill with their own water and yeah. their own streams. Right. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the, the water f flows in right away. But a lot of times uh, we're just we're just digging holes for them. Yeah. Um, and yeah. That they're going to have to dig deeper. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I, and, and I appreciate that. I would also say there's a, there was something about you. I could think of, um, I, I don't know if it's okay to name names. Yeah, but sure. I, sure. Dr. Grant Osborne sticks out for me because I had him for a lot of New Testament classes. But the, but the two things about you both that struck me was both of your concern for the church. I would, and I mean the local assembly, not yeah. simply the universal church. Cause I did have some profs who spoke, you know, very great theological ideas. And I was, you know, struggling to keep up and reading all the readings and such. But there was something about having professors who love the local assembly to the point that your teaching was keeping us, well, always reminding us that that's sort of our laboratory for how these ideas get fleshed out and worked out. So I, that's the part I do look forward to at seminaries to remind, keep reminding students that yes, some things are deep, but you always are working this out with real people, real problems, real issues that come at you, and and um, and that's part of it. You know, Dennis, when I when we were at Trinity together, you know, both of us were young, <clears throat> um, but we had a lot of really young students. 
mm. right out of college, and <laughs> they were going to change the world, and they were going to be the next Bill Hybels or whoever. They were going to be the next person that really turned the world upside down with their pastoring, and mm. they hadn't done a thing in a church, you know. Yeah. Uh, right. Increasingly, seminary students are getting older, and yeah. they're already in ministry. Right. And what I have found is that, you know, I'm deeply committed to our local church, Church of the Redeemer. Mm-hmm. And you're com- deeply committed, and you will be deeply committed down here. Um, but uh, I find the students bring so much into the class yes. from yeah. their churches, that uh, from ministry they're going on right now, that sometimes I think, okay, just open up for conversation in the next 45 minutes. We're all learning from one another. It's, yes. it's It can be wonderful. Yeah. That's good. I, I appreciate that, too, because I, and I've seen a little taste of that even in Northern Live. Um, where students can speak with each other, not just uh, listen to me. And and they do bring a wealth and diversity of experience that I find very enriching, that many people are coming for the training after having already engaged their uh, their call in ministry. So that's I, I find that really wonderful. Okay, Peter says this. I don't know how much time we have, Chad. Okay. We're, get, we're getting close. Okay. Um, Peter says... Now, as an elder myself, mm. I like that translation. This is an NRSV. Okay. Uh, or as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it, not mm. for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. Okay, a few thoughts on this passage uh, as a pastor. Yeah. Um, I, I, one of the things I would like you to talk about is this lording it over tendency that yeah. we find so much. But, to, but anything that struck you in the reading of that that you, you would want to share with us? Yeah, I, I'm, I've long been concerned that we have models of pastors that have changed the word pastor to something else. And uh, uh, Peter uh, takes the word pastor and actually keeps it as shepherd, right? It's a, yeah, yeah. it's really caring. So I tell people that <clears throat> I think what we've lost is this art of teaching people how to care for each other. So we tend, so we had a model that got big in the eighties and nineties, nothing against mega churches. I just mean some models were, of getting as many people in a building as possible, and you still had a lot of hurting people. Mm. So for me, it's really about helping churches to understand that the pastor sets an example in caring. Doesn't mean the church won't grow big, I think it can, but there has to be an example from the pastor of caring for, for, the, uh, for the members, even if that's broken down in some creative strategic way. But, but that's that's there. I've seen leaders who who have exploited the congregation without even realizing it necessarily by buying the most expensive car, wearing the fanciest clothes, doing the kinds of things that send a message that I'm going to that success is about these material things. And in many ways, it can be exploitative. So their leadership then becomes dictatorial. There's kind of this uh, um, um, almost oppressive kind of role. And some people take it because they think that's what leadership means. And I think the way of Jesus is so countercultural of that, uh, to that. And I think Peter's picked up on that. The way of Jesus is 
washing the disciples' feet. And so it so doesn't mean that we don't exert authority, but what it does mean is that we serve people and in our service, we gain authority even to speak into their lives. So I have, yeah, I just have some strong feelings about that. But I do think that if we could link the historical Peter to this passage, I think he's got the foot washing in mind <laughs> when, he, <laughs> when he talks about um, humbling yourselves and, and clothing yourselves with humility in verse five, that there's something about putting on that slave's clothing and, and, mm-hmm. and stooping down and caring for, for your people. You know, um, and then I'll turn it over to you to give a final thought for our listeners. But I, I often say that um, my definition of a pastor is a pastor is someone who pastors people. <laughs> and it, it sounds kind of silly, but that I, I think a lot of people think that a pastor is someone who preaches a sermon yes. or who, who runs an organization or who who is a leader. And I think a pastor is someone who pastors people. And so uh, it is not uncommon now that I'm a seminary professor that someone will write me a letter or call me or ask me this question. Do you think I'm called to to be a pastor? And I always say to them this, I always say this, are are you pastoring anybody now? And who sees you as their pastor? And they'll kind of look at me. Well, it's, a, you know, in a sense, they're saying it's when I get hired that I'm a pastor. And I say, no, pastoring is a gift. Amen. This is something that you are. It's not something that you will become because you get hired. It's something you cannot not do because this is the way God wired you. and gave Amen. Amen. I, I like that. Amen. <laughs> okay, Dennis, final thoughts for our, our listeners. Oh, you mean just generally? Uh, about First Peter, about writing oh. commentary, about pastoring, anything you wanted to say. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. There's too, oh, my goodness. There's too much. There's too, I, I, guess, I guess I want to say that um, I, I hope that as people engage the scriptures and engage their church, that they'll find fresh and new ways to um, build community and love and affirm one another. I, I, I'm, I'm sensing a, a, some, you know, division. I guess we could say more, more uh, about that. But there's some sense of division in Christianity, not just within evangelicalism, but all around. And I think we haven't uh, grasped always how to be loving and civil with each other. So I guess I want the last word to be love. And just like the preacher at that uh, royal wedding, you know, <laughs> the bishop was. The bishop, yeah. I mean, he, just, he just hit it, you know, and I just he did. He did. It's powerful about the message of love that I wish I, I that that would be a good way to leave this. I think. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Good. Okay, Chaz. Yeah, I'll wrap it up here. Thanks, Dennis, for being with us. It was great to have you on the podcast. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Good deal. Well, uh, we're thankful for you listeners as always. And and such an important topic to hear. At the end of the day, it comes down to love and understanding how First Peter fits in the story of God and how that's so essential for us as our work and helping um, being the ones who get to help the kingdom take root now in our world. So um, one of the things Scott and Dennis talked about, obviously, was Northern Seminary. This podcast is put on by Northern Seminary. And I just want to encourage you, if you 
you have any interest in a seminary degree, they mentioned how we have a Northern Life platform. You can engage really from anywhere in the world, whether you're from the Netherlands, like one of our students, or um, anywhere in America or anywhere you may find yourself. Um, we'd love to be able to walk with you and um, and and help you discern what the uh, maybe a place seminary could play in your ministry. So you can learn more about any of our programs at seminary.edu. Um, specifically, Dennis and Scott will be teaching in the Masters of Arts in New Testament. That's the one that I'm a part of as well. Um, but if you've got any questions or any way we can help with that, please don't hesitate to reach out, even to me personally, at crobbins at seminary.edu. But um, we're grateful for, as always, to have you as a listener and look forward to uh, have you with us next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.